This episode is brought to you in part by Our Daily Bread Ministries. Experience the joy and freedom that comes from a faith that perseveres. Check out Unshakable Moxie, growing a resilient faith at unshakablemoxie.com from Our Daily Bread Ministries. Visit unshakablemoxie.com. So somebody said to me in the middle of that season, they said, you need to read the Desert Fathers and Mothers. And I said, well, I know about them. They said, no, you really need to read them. And I said, I, what they did for me is they charted the uncharted terrain. They helped me understand how do we discover God when everything that we have known about ourselves is stripped away and all of the external supports that gave us a feeling of comfort and stability, all that stuff is gone. Who is God for you now? Well, it is a whole new season of the Finding Holy podcast, and welcome back. We're back to weekly episodes. My family and I have just moved across the country, so thank you for being patient as we get a new season going. Our very first episode will help you to think clearly and generously about what silence and solitude and other kind of desert practices might teach us both collectively and individually in what feels like a very polarized and on edge sort of time culturally. So enjoy this conversation with Andrew Arndt. Welcome to the Finding Holy podcast. I'm your host, Ashley Hales, author of A Spacious Life. I love big ideas, but ideas have to move beyond an ivory tower to find their application in the midst of our work and our laundry routines. Here on the Finding Holy podcast, expect conversations about how to live faithfully in a post-Christian world, but without the vitriol, posturing, or shouting across the aisles. All right, we are kicking off a new season here at the podcast, and I am delighted to have Andrew Arndt with me. He is the author of the most recent book, Streams in the Wasteland, Finding Spiritual Renewal with the Desert Fathers and Mothers. He's based in Colorado and a teaching pastor at New Life Church in Colorado Springs, so it's really fun to have you here. Thanks so much for being here, Andrew. Happy to be here. Thanks to ha- Thanks for having me, Ashley. Yo, you're so welcome. So tell us about kind of the germination process of this book. Why why are we going back to the desert? Yeah, well, it's not a book. I was just telling a friend recently. Uh, it's not a book I ever imagined writing 15 years ago and even five years ago. Uh, the Desert Fathers and Mothers were not that big uh, a part of my life, uh, so I would not have imagined writing it. I'm born and raised in the non-denominational, like Pentecostal, charismatic world. And uh, as such, kind of the map of the people that influenced us when I was growing up did not include people like this. You know, like we were, we were reading a lot of books by people named uh, Kenneth and Oral Roberts and, <laughs> yeah. you know, Marilyn Hickey and, you know, people like that. But Desert Fathers and Mothers were not part of it. it but um, my mom was a pretty voracious reader. And also, I think in retrospect, kind of a desert mother herself in her own way. And I talk about her some in the book. But I remember being 16 or 17 years old, and I was in the middle of a spiritual awakening, um, born and raised in church, loved Jesus, but it was becoming real for me. And I was so like hungry, intellectually, I was hungry. 
uh, looking for people to strengthen me in my journey. And on the kitchen island one day, I saw my mom was reading a book by an author I'd never heard of before. And the title was really intriguing to me. And it was Richard Foster's The Celebration of Discipline. And so here's a, here's a Quaker, you know, writing this. And Quaker writing is not making its way into my world. But there it was. And I remember saying to my mom, I was like, what are you reading? And she told me about it. And, uh, and I said, well, where did, you, where did you find it? And she said, well, my pastor, like our pastor recommended that I read it. I said, was it good? Do you like it? She goes, it's wonderful. I said, well, when you're done, can I take a look at it? She said, sure. So I remember grabbing the Celebration of Discipline for the first time, and I just plowed right through it. And there was something about the way of following Jesus that Richard was laying out that was so orderly. It was so devoted to spiritual practice. And I was so committed to the love of God and the love of others as like the central thing in life that that really resonated with me. But the other thing that really resonated with me was that he was drawing from this like really wide stream of Christian thought, including some desert fathers and mothers, some some monastics. And that really kind of got me started. And it was years later when I was uh, a lead pastor in a church plant in Denver, Colorado. Um, Henry Nouwen's The Way of the Heart wound up in my hands. And for those listeners that aren't aware, the way of the heart is really his attempt to leverage desert wisdom to help us live more humanly. And so he just talks real simply in the way that he does about solitude, silence, and prayer, which are kind of the three hallmarks of desert faith. That really gripped me. So they, I've known about them for years, but it was a personal crisis that really threw me into the depths of desert wisdom. And about five years ago, my wife and I were in the midst of a transition from our church in Denver that we had helped to plant and pastor. And uh, we were transitioning into my role here at the church in Colorado Springs, which on paper, you know, is like, hey, good job, buddy. You know, like you started at this small organic thing and you grew it to four or 500 people, then you handed it off. And then the big evangelical charismatic mega church came knocking on your door and said, hey, be a teaching pastor for us, which is like a blank check just to kind of operate in your gifts, your best gifts. And But for me, it wasn't that. For me, it was so wildly disorienting because we had never, I had not dreamed of anything other than for my life than being the pastor of that church in Denver forever. You know, like I've often told people I could think of nothing better than uh, spending 50 years with that group of people and uh, dying in the pulpit one day and then they, they bury me in the backyard. You know, I was just, that's who I was. Like I'm that guy leading this church and now all of a sudden that's gone. And I just didn't know what to do with myself. And the first few months out here in Colorado Springs were so wildly disorienting. I've told a number of folks um, that I didn't have language for it at the time, but in retrospect, it felt like being put in a witness protection program. You know, it was like, you used to be this guy over here, but now like, here's your new church, here's your new community, here's your new job, here's your new house, here's your new credit card, have a nice life. And I couldn't, I didn't know what to do with that. My identity was so bound up with what I did that it was just, and so somebody said to me in the middle of that season, they said, you need to read the Desert Fathers and Mothers. And I said, well, I know about them. They said, no, you really need to read them. And I said, why? And they said, because the experience that has been thrust upon you that you didn't choose and you're struggling with, they sought it out. They actually sought out the stripping of identity, the stripping of reputation, the stripping away of power, because they wanted to seek God in the purest form that they knew how to and seek the love of God and the love of other people. They were trying to recover their humanity by precisely the thing that's happened to you, not by your choice. I think that you'll be helped by them. And so I started, I grabbed Benedict Award's alphabetical collection of the sayings of desert fathers and mothers. And I would wake up in the morning and I would do my routine of 
reading the scriptures and praying. And then the first thing that I would read after that is I would read seven, eight, nine, ten of those sayings and just let them kind of soak. And what I say in the book is that what they did for me is they charted the uncharted terrain. They helped me understand how do we discover God when everything that we have known about ourselves is stripped away and all of the external supports that gave us a feeling of comfort and stability, all that stuff is gone. Who is God for you now? They gave that to me. And it took a long time, Ashley. Like it took a solidly a couple years for me to really get where I think they were trying to take me. But eventually what happened was I found that I was no longer like my first, I don't know, I'd say my first six to nine months here, maybe a year here. It felt like every other week I was concocting some comeback strategy. You know, like, well, I'm going to go plant a church here. I'm going to do this thing. or I'm going to do that thing. It was like me trying to fabricate my own resurrection. And they gave me permission to just let the grieving process happen. Like, how about you just die all the way dead to the point, <laughs> yeah. to the point where you're okay just being in the grave with Jesus because Jesus is enough for you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And when you get to that, when you get to that point, then let's have a conversation about what's next. When you're so in love with the nothingness of it that you don't even really want to be pulled out of it again. Um, they did that for me. It changed. It changed my life. Changed the way that I preach, counsel, pastor. I mean, it was it was an overhaul of my spirituality for sure. Would you chart maybe some of those? You talked about it as a map a bit ago, you know, thinking through, you know, they charted the unchartable. Would you be able to name some of those those place marks, um, those map marks for either for you in your own personal journey or, you know, as you've studied and read them, you know, more extensively the last several years to say like these, these would be the places that we would come back to? I've alluded to it just a little bit to this point, but I, I, they, you know, the first thing for me was kind of the identity piece. And then it became like, a, oh my gosh, there's like a, there's a whole landscape that you're illuminating here on how we can live more humanly. But the first piece of it for me was what they exposed was the compulsions that I had in my own soul. The things that I had told myself that I need to be a complete human being. And those things for me were very much wrapped up with identity and position and reputation. You know, like when you get, it was so revealing to me that I couldn't just vacate that thing that I was doing in Denver and be okay. Like what it revealed was you have so much of yourself wrapped up in this that it's borderline, like it's, it's addictive, you know? And so what does it look like to live in the knowledge that God is just enough for you? And if that's not the case, like if God isn't enough for you, um, and again, like having stepped away from the position, it gave me the ability to see this. But when God is not enough for you and you need something else to complete yourself, how does that actually influence your relationship with the thing? And the truth is that it makes it kind of a codependent relationship, you know, like you can't like as a leader in a church, you know, and this is this would be true of like parents too, as a parent, if you need your congregation or you need your kids to complete something that's lacking in you, the odds are really good that you're going to have an enmeshed, let's call it that, an enmeshed relationship with them, where either 
uh, it's way too close, the emotional being rises and falls, or you're constantly kind of pulling away from each other in an unhealthy way, like a fence all of a sudden will send you spinning. But if we're okay with the essential poverty of our own soul, I think that it, what it means is that we can be in relationship with the people and the things around us in a way that's neither escapist nor trying to control. We can be what we're supposed to be in those relationships. I, I, that to me was the biggest thing that they taught me, like that essential poverty of spirit. You know, Like one of the Desert Fathers said, sit in your cell and your cell will teach you everything. That you just being in that place of solitude, I think will give you the, it'll give back to you anyway, like the wisdom that God isn't enough, God and God alone. And once you get that, it, it changes the way that you interact with the world around you. So that to me was the biggest thing for sure. What were some of those practices? You, um, yeah, silence and solitude, I think, have increasingly become important to my husband's a pastor in, in our spiritual lives, and we've done some church planting and lots of pioneering contexts, you know, where it's easy to get so focused on the doing that the being becomes much more difficult. But what were some of the practical ways in which you learned how you said to, to really be dead? <laughs> you know, fully yeah. dead. So Jesus could resurrect you instead of, you know, you trying to, you know, get some different parachuting plans to, to, yeah, stroke our egos. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it gave me, you know, I think one of the things that happened when I became a pastor, and I think this is one of the beautiful things about pastoral ministry and you know, it because you've been in it is, um, how closely you carry, people and the concern of your church to your heart. And I always told people, you know, like one of the places in the Old Testament that always resonated with me and resonates with me still is Moses talking to the priests about the garments that the priest wears. And in the ephod, you have, there were stones that were sewed into the ephod, one stone on each shoulder, and the names of the 12 tribes of Israel were engraved. And Moses says, this is so that you always have the sons of Israel, the children of Israel over your heart as you minister before the Lord. And I always thought that's like, to me, that's a picture of pastoral ministry, um, that, that we carry the community into the presence of God. There's a priestly function there. And I, and I love that. But one of the things that I found over the years was that um, because of that kind of entanglement that you sort of get into, sometimes like I think what, I, what started happening was I couldn't be in the presence of God without having something to plan for or without having something to kind of, okay, I got to figure this thing out or God, what is your vision for this thing? Or what's your vision for the upcoming season? I couldn't just like be. And so I think the biggest practice for me was just learning how to be okay with like, there's nothing that I need to do any strategic planning for. There's nothing that I need to seek God for as far as like vision for the future. In fact, every time I'm seeking God now for like, what's the vision for my life? I feel like I'm getting rebuked by the Lord. You know, like just stop and just stay, just stay dead. You know, like, de like death is, death is a rest, you know? And so be in this place of death. I, that was, I think the first and the biggest thing. The second thing was, I think, you know, we started that church. I was a young pastor when we stepped into that 28 years old. And, and uh, I had gotten pretty addicted to being the first chair in the church and having my word be the most important word in any room that I was in. And it didn't matter how much I worked for like a flat leadership structure and a sense of collegiality. If you're in that position, the pastoral position, it, there's a spiritual authority that goes with it and people respect it and it's real, but you can get pretty addicted to that. 
to being the person that the last word matters the most for, you know? And so like, I remember one of the things that I felt like the Lord told us when we came to this new position was that I, I needed to learn again, the discipline of not having, not being the most important word in the room and learning to support the vision of somebody else, lift up the arms of somebody else. And so playing second chair, third chair, fourth chair, fifth chair, just like being one of a company of um, people who are discerning what the Lord is doing. That was really huge for me. So I, to me, those things were like the biggest things, like just learning to be as dead as I needed to be. And then also not, you know, not being the most important voice in the room, you know, again, like not, and this, and it goes back to that essential poverty of spirit. You're not in control. And are you, can you be in a situation in which you're not in control? And I think a lot of leaders, the reason that they struggle with their, their own leadership is because they're like, they're trying to leverage their leadership to make that situation predictable for them and make it comfortable for them. And so you're not a prophetic voice in the community anymore at that point. You're just pushing buttons and pulling levers to try to, you know, create buffers around your own, you know, neuroses, fears, and desires. So like, can, again, can you be in community without being in control of it? That was huge. That was like a, that was, it was purgatory for me, honestly, like just letting all that go. Yeah. <laughs> right. Cause you're like, I, but I know how to control it. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. You know, as we think about, looking at kind of monastic spirituality, we can really tend to focus on the individual. So, you know, this guy, this woman, you know, went out to the desert, they were alone, right? In their, they practiced solitude. There were some communities, but on the whole, it was kind of a one-on-one -on -one sort of thing. You know, given that our, our current kind of Christian spirituality amongst Protestants particularly tends to be pretty individualistic, how do the desert fathers and mothers actually speak against some of that kind of hyper individualism that we see in Christian culture? Well, I think to be frank, Ashley, what was astonishing to me about encountering the desert fathers and mothers, like really doing a deep dive was how communal they actually are fundamentally communal. Of course they value the life of solitude and silence and prayer. You know, um, your cell, stay in your cell and your cell will teach you everything. I mean, that's certainly a hallmark of desert spirituality, but they never, only in, the, only in their worst and most excessive moments, do they sever themselves completely from relationship. Owen Chadwick, Cambridge historian, said that one of the things that, um, and this is in the preface, the introduction to John Cassian's uh, conferences, so the conversations that John Cassian, who later became one of the fathers of the monastic movement, had with the desert fathers, is in his remarks, he said that total seclusion, total isolation, was found to lead to delusions and erratic behavior and even to madness. And so they were, they were suspicious of people that went, well, I don't need people because they knew deeply that the way that we are created is we're created in the image of the triune God, which means that we are fundamentally oriented to relationship. So the, one of the ways that you could think about the desert movement is that the desert is actually a kind of, it's in its own way, it's a kind of purification to throw us back into relationship in the right way. And so what they're fighting against is the disordering of relationships, and they're trying to get us back into reordered relationships, relationships that are based on, first of all, the love of God, and then secondly, the love of human beings that's fundamentally respectful and that seeks Christ in them and seeks God in them in all things. So one of them, I think it was uh, um, Anthony, said that our life, think about this. I mean, this is, again, this flies in the face of the way that we think about these, these folks, but he said that our life and our death is with our neighbor. 
And if we gain our brother, we gain God. And if we scandalize our brother, we've sinned against God. We actually lose God. So what they're trying to do is they're trying to get us out of manipulative relationships with each other and codependent and enmeshed relationships with one another and domineering relationships. They're trying to get us out of all of that. And they're trying to help us see the face of God and the face of the other that's sitting in front of us. So I think that what they would say to our hyper-individualism um, is, number one, like you need other people. You need them for your spirituality to become what it's supposed to be. But you need each other in a very specific way. And I think about, and I talk about this a little bit, I think one of the great sort of desert fathers, almost like monastics of our time, is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And in his wonderful little book, Life Together, that he wrote on Christian community, I mean, he said that, like he said, the Christian, like we have one another forever in Jesus Christ, but we only have each other in Jesus Christ. And so it's the Christ reality that shapes our engagement with each other, not our agenda, not our desire, not our fear, but Jesus Christ. I think they're trying to throw us back into that. They're trying to teach us how to live in rightly ordered relationships with each other. This episode is brought to you in part by Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries, which prepares Christian women for leadership. At Bow, we believe that every woman is a leader because she influences someone. So whom do you influence? Do you mentor a woman, serve in the workplace, or do you lead a small group, teach the Bible, or even lead an entire ministry? No matter who or how many you influence, our free online resources will help equip you. Our videos, podcast episodes, and articles from experienced women leaders will encourage you and perfect your leadership skills. They offer wisdom for dealing with ministry pitfalls, current biblical issues, health for your own soul, and insights for shepherding others well. In addition, BOW offers Bible studies designed to connect women of multiple generations. They provide a challenge to both women new to the Bible and those wanting to dig deeper. Be our guest and browse all of our free resources and low-cost Bible studies at beyondordinarywomen.org. Yeah, so what kind of hope, um, you know, as we kind of re-recover, because I feel like the Desert Fathers and Mothers have kind of become hip, and, you know, in the last maybe 10, 15 years, like, you start seeing more kind of evangelical publishing um, (laughs) on on them. Yeah. I mean, Foster obviously was a while ago, but, you know, know, as we, as we think about that, like what hope do some of these desert practices uh, give to institutions? So, you know, the, the, the institution of the, of the church global, you know, as well as various networks. Um, I'm also thinking of, yeah, you know, the, the millennial kind of generation that is tending to kind of deconstruct um, and to what extent might um, may, might the fathers and mothers be kind of a bridge back into an institutional belonging? Yeah, I, man, what a really, really great question. I, um, I, I think there are lots of ways to answer that question. I think from the church standpoint, I think that what they can do for us, I mean, that they, this was a response to, like the desert movement was a response to excesses that they saw in the church and the and the moral degradation that was happening in Roman society. And so these folks went, wait, can we just stop for a second and remember what life with Jesus is all about? It is about a life rooted in prayer, a life rooted in community, and a life fundam- fundamentally given 
for the love, not the domination or the control of, but for the love of the world. And I think that we need to recapture that. I think that reading them as a church leader, reading them has helped me reframe my own leadership in the church, you know, that wait, 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 this is simpler than we sometimes make it. Like, what's my job as a pastor? My job as a pastor is to teach me. I mean, Eugene Peterson used to say this. Like, he used to say, fundamentally, I think my job is to help people pray. <laughs> he meant, because he was trying to throw them into a relationship with God that's an all-encompassing relationship. So, like, okay, what's my job as a pastor? I'm trying to help people live in an ongoing relationship with God. I'm trying to help them live in rightly ordered relationships with one another. And I'm trying to help them use whatever they have for the good of the world and the glory of God. So I think there's a reorientation that can happen. It's just there's a, something refreshing about them. For society at large, Ashley, I've been having a lot of conversations with people about this. But I think that maybe the biggest thing that they offer a world right now that's tearing itself to pieces is this sort of vision of a reclaimed humanity that's fundamentally based on respect for one another, respect for the incredible mystery of whatever it means, whatever we mean when we say a human being, like when a human being is in front of you, this is a sacred and inviolable mystery. And we neither need to fear it and run away from it, nor do we need to try to conquer it and subjugate it. And I've been saying this to a lot of people lately, but it seems to me that maybe the greatest moral achievement and the most pressing moral achievement that we can have in our age is the ability to sit with people who are genuine others from us. So ethnic others, ideological others, political others, theological others, and neither feel the need to run away nor feel, nor feel the need to try to like conquer or convert in some way. But can we sit in that tensive space with an other and know that somehow in that, in the, like in the effort required to be in that place, that actually is the experience of God that that's molding us in humility. It's molding us in a fundamental respect for other people. And it is teaching us again, that wisdom of Abba Anthony, that if we gain our brother and sister, we gain God, but if we scandalize them, then we've lost God. So I think that they can teach us that. They teach us that by teaching us to bite our tongues, by teaching us to prefer other people's points of view. They teach us that by, again, insisting that we not control the outcomes of things. I think that they can give us the ability. I mean, we're living in this wildly polarized time. So, like, I just think that we need an army of people on whatever side of the issue, whatever side of the political spectrum, to be able to have a non-anxious, respectful, curious presence with others, respecting the mystery of God in them. So I, I think that they can help us with those ways. You did ask about deconstruction there. I'll just answer this real quick. I, I think the other thing that they give us on the deconstruction front is, you know, one of the reasons it seems to me that deconstruction is happening so pervasively in evangelicalism is that we have placed so much emphasis on the life of the mind that faith is having the right ideas about God. It's about certain movements of your prefrontal cortex. It's about whatever is happening up here. How is the furniture arranged up here? And if the furniture, because that's so important, if the furniture gets disordered or you have something going on in your life that it's preventing you Maybe it's throwing into question how you've ordered the furniture or how the powers that be told you to order the furniture. All of a sudden, you start going, well, that's it. I'm deconstructing. I'm, I'm losing my faith. And I think what they help us remember is that faith is not just about what happens here, but faith is about the totality of being a human person called into community with other people um, by the wooing of the Spirit. 
so that we don't have to place so much emphasis on the mind. That a great deal of faith is just being in community, even when the furniture of our minds is in chaos, we can go, yeah, but faith is not really about that, first of all. That's part of it. You know, the mind comes along for the ride. But really, this is about like the body and where our bodies are, are our bodies and communities of faith. And and I think that, again, I'm thinking now from a pastoral and a ministry standpoint, but I think that I think that pastors have a lot to learn here, and it's really hopeful. I think that we can learn a lot from that. Like one of the things I've often said to people over the years when they've sat in front of me, and they're telling me, you know, Pastor, I'm losing my faith. You know, I grew up in this Baptist church, and, you know, and then I went to a liberal arts college somewhere, and they taught me about evolution, and I've been reading Richard Gore lately or whatever, and I don't know. And, you know, and I go, okay, okay, fine, tell me about it, and they'll tell me all about it, you know, and I'll say to them, that is amazing, and I'm glad you told me that. Um, are you still coming to serve communion this weekend? You know what I mean? And they go, oh, that'll kind of like throw them. Wait, uh, yeah, I guess so. Okay, great. So that's me as a member of the body of Christ going, great. Like I appreciate all that's happening up here, but Christ Jesus claims you still. Even if your mind can't fathom it, you can allow him to lay hands on you by virtue of like answering the question in planning center, are you showing up? <laughs> right, right. Right. Just right. click the yes yep. box. Yep. And yep. that's part of how salvation unfolds in the world. So what's cool about that then is that it takes the energy level down on the deconstruction front and it gives them permission to go, okay, like whatever's happening up here, maybe that's a good and beautiful thing. And I can let that happen the way that it needs to happen without feeling the need to make decisions about it. I can just do that inside this thing. So I think that they have a lot to teach us on that front. You know, they can help church leaders be less threatened by those things and more curious about what's really going on in people, even as we, not in any kind of controlling way, but even as we, in a godly way, a covenantal way, we hold on to people. You know? Yeah, that's a helpful um, way to think about it too, as, you know, as holistic people who find their identities in community too, rather than simply in, in what one thinks at a given moment, uh, realizing our, our minds are fallible too, right? And broken and in need of redemption. So, you know, as we think about growth towards health, as we think about what the desert fathers and mothers have to give us um, to, to be this non-anxious presence, to be non-enmeshed, you know, is there a particular desert father or mother that you've kind of kept coming back to as you've taken this journey over the last several years, or that just feels like, okay, this is, this is the piece of information. This is the wisdom that I feel like I can carry in my back pocket, use it pastorally uh, to help folks begin to imagine something more holistic, something that isn't simply about one's either emotional or intellectual intellectual experience in the moment yeah i don't think that there's one i think i you know i still am reading the alphabetical sayings i just kind of keep going through them and uh, letting them get deeper and deeper but i i'll go back to what i said at the beginning i think it's that essential poverty of spirit again it's the you know when thomas merton uh entered the gethsemane gethsemane uh, uh abbey the monastery um you know, back in the middle part of the 20th century, he tells this great story in his book, The Seven Story Mountain, where he went, he passed through this one doorway and over the top of it were written the words, God alone. And that for him had this great symbolic significance. Like, okay, when I pass through this, I'm not relying on the external supports, again, to make myself feel good, but it's it's God alone. And 
I I think that's fundamental to who we are. Like, is God enough for you? And if it is, then we don't we don't need to control other people. And because we're freed from other people, because we're freed from outcomes, what it gives us is the ability to love people really well. And I think about what Paul says in Philippians one. He says that I pray that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may discern what is best and may be pure and blameless. And so they're not giving us like the rule book on how we're supposed to be with others. They're kind of throwing us into like, hey, what is the what is love demand in the moment? And our relationships with one another can't be shaped by just what's good for me. It's got to be shaped by, and it can also just be shaped by what's good for you. It's got to be shaped by like, what is good for this moment? What is the righteousness of God demanding? What is love? What is shalom demanding in this moment? And they free us to act in those ways. But there again, there's like a purgation that has to happen first, you know, like I'm thinking about Thomas Akempis, who said like the only person who can safely govern, govern others is the person who prefers not to lead anybody. And the only person who can safely speak is the one who prefer to be silent. And the only person that can safely be with other people is the person who prefer to be alone. So they're throwing us into that. They're teaching us to like let go of all of that stuff so that when we engage with others, when we speak, when, if and when we ever take charge of things, we're doing it in a way that's not needy. It's not trying to fill up something in us, which means that it's not manipulative and it's not coercive. Yeah. It feels like that is also really helpful to think about you know, that a lot of that describes kind of a midlife journey or just what happens naturally through suffering. Are there other avenues? I mean, do you think simply reading, you know, the desert fathers and mothers is going to help us get to that wise spot? Um, no, I don't. <laughs> and I, there's, you know, and I talk about it a little bit in the book. I, there, uh, there's a guy, uh, desert father by the name of Paphnutius, who said that there are three ways really in which God gets what God wants in our lives. And he said, one way is that we just feel the direct inspiration of the spirit. And so we've all had that when we're in our prayer closet or wherever, and the Lord speaks to us and we go, oh, that's the thing to do. And we just do it. And our life changes. Yay. <laughs> Other times <laughs> he said, it's through the counsel and influence of others. So we've got friends that are like, hey, you really might consider we sit with a spiritual director and that helps us. Or we read a book on the desert fathers and mothers and that helps us. That's number two. But he said, but the third thing is necessity. And what he means by necessity is that sometimes we're just thrown into spaces like I was that we're totally unprepared for. And he says, you can't waste that. When that happens, that's the moment when you really start need to start partnering with the spirit. So I, I would say to people, don't waste a crisis. And so if you get thrown into a space, loss of job, loss of health, loss of position, loss of status, any kind of loss, anything where it feels like life is kind of eating your lunch and it's thrown you for a loop, you're not sure where God is, you're not sure what to make of the moment, rest assured that at least part of what God is doing in that, because God claims all things for good, even if he's not divinely orchestrating every evil thing that happens to it, he's in it and he's working for our good inside of it. So ask yourself the question, how might the living God be freeing me of things in this that I need to be freed from? So I'd say just don't, don't waste the crises of your life. Try to spot God. That's, and again, that's the theme of the book, Streams in the Wasteland, that if, you're, if you look for it and if you have eyes to see it, you'll see that streams are gushing up in the wilderness, you know, streams in the wasteland. And yeah, this longed for contentment, you know, too, that mm -hmm. even in horrible circumstances that we have sure footing. Thank you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
Well, as we conclude, I love asking everyone their laundry routines here at the podcast. And the impetus for this really comes from Kathleen Norris. She's, she could be one of our modern-day uh, desert mothers. Um, she could be. Uh, but she she comes back to faith when she sees the Catholic priest cleaning out the chalice, right? And, to, and dawns on her that um, there's a sense in which God is very much concerned with the mundane liturgical kind of um, elements of our lives, including dishes or laundry. So I love to ask everybody, just practically, what's your laundry routine look like? Well, we have uh, three teenagers and a 10-year-old. There's a lot of laundry happening in our house. Yeah. So what's the laundry routine? It's 24-7, 365 <laughs> is what it is. Yeah. Every single day, there are piles of laundry that we go, where in God's name did you come from? We literally just did all of it. So uh, there is no routine at this point right, right now. It's it is like the uh, shopping it, it in. Yes, it's Genesis. Uh, it's Genesis one, uh, formless and void. That's our laundry <laughs> is constantly formless and void with darkness hovering over the surface of the <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Maybe your your laundry room could be like your cell. It could figure out some way to you know sit in it, and it might teach you everything you need to know. <laughs> I will. Uh, I'll take that to heart, Ashley. I'll pray okay. about that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. We'll see how it goes. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Andrew, for being with us. It's been a pleasure. I appreciate you sharing vulnerably about your own journey. And uh, thanks so much for sharing about your book, Duke's Dreams in the Wasteland. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Ashley. Thanks for being here at the Finding Holy podcast. For your one small step this week, I'd love for you to actually set a two-minute timer and just be in God's presence in silence and solitude. Two minutes can feel like a long time, and yet it helps to rewire our brain, it helps to settle down our nervous system, and it helps remind us that we are more than what we do, what we have, or what we produce. So I encourage you to just spend two minutes in silence this week. Also, if you are new to the podcast or you are a faithful listener, would you just take a second to leave a rating and review for the Finding Holy podcast? It helps other people find these great and rich conversations. Friends, it is an honor to walk with you. We have some really fun changes and tweaks to the Finding Holy podcast coming out this fall. So you won't want to miss a thing. Hit subscribe share with a friend. We are so glad you're here. Remember, big things matter, but so does your laundry. <laughs>